Hello, it's Monday, the 21st of November, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang Woo. President Yoon Sung Yeol has suspended his morning Q&A sessions with reporters amid continued acrimony with a broadcaster NBC. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. Human Rights Watch recently published a report on how North Korea has been using COVID-19 as a pretext to substantially increase border security to the detriment of its people. We'll learn more for our in-depth today. And then coming up, we have a Monday Sports Roundup World Cup special. We'll be speaking to a journalist in Qatar, as well as preview South Korea's first game against Uruguay on Thursday. We have all that and more on today's Crow 24. President Yoon Sung-yeol has suspended his daily Q&A sessions with reporters amid the continuous rancor between the presidential office and the broadcaster MBC over their coverage of the president. For more on this story, we have with us our news editor, Kui Jin, joining us in the studio. Kui Jin, hello, it's good to see you. Hello, jang So it has become somewhat of a daily morning routine for President Yoon to step in front of a bank of reporters and camera crew to briefly comment and answer questions on his way to work at the Yongsan presidential office. Mm-hmm. But now that is no more, it seems. Tell us what prompted the top office to call off these so-called stepping sessions. Well, Yoon arrived at the top office uh, in Yongsan on Monday morning, but headed straight to his office. Just before his arrival, the office, uh, office of the presidential spokesperson issued a statement announcing that the daily morning sessions cannot continue unless there are fundamental changes to prevent a recurrence of a recent, quote, unsavoury incident. The sessions were designed for a more open communication with the public. The statement said the office will consider a possible resumption after a measure to effectively serve that purpose has been drawn up. Um, The so-called unsavoury incident appears to refer to a verbal altercation between an MBC reporter and a presidential office uh, official in the wake of a doorstepping session last Friday. On Sunday, the presidential office says uh, said that it takes this incident very seriously. The national broadcaster ran a hot mic report during Yun's trip to the US in September with erroneous captions that made it appear as if he had insulted U.S. President Joe Biden and Congress. The top office claimed that the distorted report had sought to hamper U.S. Uh, South Korea relations and the conflict came to a head after the office barred NBC reporters from boarding the presidential plane during Yun's tour of Southeast Asia earlier this month. Yes, we'll keep watch of how long this suspension of these Q&A sessions last. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on, a lawyer involved in the Tejangdong development scandal has claimed that he had offered at least 400 million won to the side of the main opposition Democratic Party leader Lee Jae-myung in 2014 when he was running for re-election for Seungnam mayor. Mm-hmm. So this was from Nam Uk, who was released early Monday when his custodial period expired. And he made the claim at his latest hearing at the Seoul Central 
District Court. What can you tell us? Well, Nam reportedly testified that he had received 2.25 billion won from real estate developer Yi Gizong between April and September in 2014 and delivered 1.25 billion of that money to Kimanbe, a major shareholder of Huachan Deyu and a key figure in the Tejangdong development scandal. Nam said that the 1.25 billion won one was mostly used for Lee's uh, election campaign. The lawyer ca- uh, claimed that at least 400 million won was uh, of that 1.25 billion won was conveyed to Lee Jae-myung's camp during his re-election campaign in 2014. Okay, let's turn now to the ongoing investigation of the fatal crowd crush tragedy in Itaewon. The special police team in charge uh, summoned the former Yongsan police chief and the Yongsan fire chief as suspects for questioning on Monday. Can you tell us more? Well, appearing for his questioning, ex-Yongsan police chief Im Jae issued an apology in front of reporters as the official uh, with the on-site command and responsibility at the time of the tragedy. Uh, he is accused of failing to take precautionary measures ahead of Halloween festivities, despite an expected mass gathering of people, then arriving at the scene of the tragedy some 50 minutes later, further delaying police response. Uh, Yongsan Fire Station Chief Che Songbum, who also arrived for questioning, is accused of augmenting fatalities after failing to act uh, to a police request for joint response prior to the tragedy and for not taking appropriate measures immediately afterward. Meanwhile, three opposition parties on Monday submitted their plan for a parliamentary investigation into the deadly Itaewon crowd crush at the request of National Assembly Speaker Kim Jin-pyo. Can you elaborate? Well, the main opposition DP, the Minor Justice Party and the Basic Income Party suggested that four-term DP uh, representative Usang Wo chair an 18-member special committee on the probe uh, consisting of 11 opposition members. The probe scheduled to run for 60 days from Thursday with one 30-day extension available will look into whether a dispersion of security personnel due to the relocation of the presidential office had an impact on the tragedy. On the other hand, the ruling uh, People Power Party, which convened a general meeting of its assembly members Monday morning, decided not to take part in the probe, maintaining its stance that priority should go to the ongoing police investigation. Let's turn to some other headlines now, specifically North Korea-related. Now, many of our listeners may recall back in March a very dramatic video footage by the North when they shot off an intercontinental ballistic missile. Well, over the weekend, North Korea released a similar video for its uh, latest ICBM launch last Friday. Uh, Let's take a listen to a clip from that video first. Oh, 
우리의 신성한 존엄과 자주권을 침탈하려고 무분별하게 날뛰는 도시 해외나 is Lichuni of course the official anchor for most major coverages of Pyongyang's state-run propaganda machine the Korean Central Television. Hijin, can you tell us a bit about this uh, very cinematic video, should we say? Well, you just heard uh, Lee Chun-hee saying, a Hwasong missile armed with the Joseon people's pent-up hatred and animosity towards U.S. hostile forces is soaring through the whole universe, putting an end to a history of shame and opening a new chapter of the righteous power of Joseon's inescapable Juche ideals. Now, Joseon is how North Korea refers to itself in Korean. Um, the video itself shows the launch from multiple angles, from the ground, from the side and back, as well as drone shots in mid-flight, as well as looking straight down as it lifts off, providing ample analysis data for researchers in the weeks to come. In a separate statement released on the Korean Central News Agency on Saturday, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un who was on-site supervising the launch, vowed a resolute nuclear response to threats by the US. The missile fired from Pyongyang International Airport flew 999.2 kilometres for 4,135 seconds and landed in international waters of the East Sea, according to North Korea's report. And that report claimed that the test clearly proved the reliability of the new major strategic weapon system to be representative of North Korea's strategic forces and its powerful combat performance as the strongest strategic weapon in the world. South Korea and the US on Saturday staged a joint air drill involving US B-1B Lancer strategic bombers in a show of force a day after North Korea's ICBM launch. And we also saw pictures of Kim Jong-un's daughter for the first time as he brought the young teen to the launch. Uh, There are photos of father and daughter walking on the runway of the airport holding hands, Mm -hmm. uh, contrasted with the backdrop of the upright Hwasong-17 missile prior to its launch. Uh, Can you tell us more about these photos? Well, KCNA uh, released some 30 photographs of Kim and his daughter, inspecting the missile. Um, The photos seem to depict any other father and daughter taking a leisurely stroll, save for the missile in the background. Um, South Korean intelligence had previously said Kim and his wife Lee Seok-ju had three children born in 2010, 2013 and 2017. The only previous confirmation of Kim's children had come from former NBA star Dennis Rodman, who had made a visit to Pyongyang on an invitation from Kim, by many accounts, uh, who is an avid NBA fan uh, back in 2013. After his trip to North Korea that year, Rodman told the Guardian newspaper that he had spent time with Kim and his family. We'll wrap it up there for our news briefing. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. Coming up next is in-depth news analysis. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. Human Rights Watch published a report last week revealing how North Korea has substantially increased security along its northern border 
using COVID-19 prevention as justification. It said the measures have worsened severe shortages of food, medicine and other necessities, as well as greatly reducing attempts by North Koreans to defect and leave the oppressive regime. To learn more about this report, we're joined on the line now by Phil Robertson, the Deputy Asia Director of Human Rights Watch. Mr. Robertson, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Could you give us more details about this report that was published last week? What did uh, Human Rights Watch find? Well, what we have found is that um, through our analysis, that the authorities in North Korea have been very, very busy on the northern border. Uh, they have constructed new primary fences in several areas. They've set up secondary layers of fencing. They've upgraded uh, existing offenses. They've uh, worked on various different p- patrol paths, built new garrisons, watchtowers, guard posts. Essentially, they have uh, further militarized that northern border uh, to make uh, crossings that are not authorized by the authorities almost impossible. Right. So how does the situation compare then to what the border region looked like before? Well, it w- I mean, obviously, there's always been uh, a lot of controls around the border. And, you know, we were looking particularly at the area around uh, Hoyong City and, uh, you know, which is a major crossing area because the, the Tumen River right there is very shallow. And previously, you know, it was almost fully fenced, but with excuse me, five watchtowers. But what we found two years later is that they had built another 169 guard posts. They built over nine kilometers of secondary fencing. They had uh, built another nine kilometers of improved primary fencing. So quite clearly a major increase in the investment of control at that border, something that really uh, made it as according to smugglers and other people we've spoken to who uh, have been operating in that area, made it almost impossible for them to operate and has caused massive uh, repercussions uh, for the the situation inside North Korea and the the various different people who are dependent on um, supplies and other essential things sent Mm. in from uh, China. The report said that uh, the North Korean authorities imposed uh, excessive and unnecessary uh, COVID-19 measures since January 2020, and this is all part of that. Uh, Why would they be considered unnecessary? There have been other countries who closed their borders during the pandemic to protect themselves. Uh, Would it not have an effect in protecting the people in North Korea from COVID-19? Well, what we've seen is uh, they've gone well beyond what other countries have done. Um, they basically banned international travel, which you know some countries have done. But they've uh, created internal movement controls uh, that have made it almost impossible for people to move from province to province. Mm. They've severely cracked down on the, the so-called uh, Jamadang gray markets. Um, they've uh, increased permissions to move uh, locally. Uh, you know, they're basically reasserting control over the, the, the North Korean people. Mm. What we saw prior to COVID was that, you know, there were these gray markets operating. People were able uh, to pay to be able to go from place to place. Uh, there was possibility for people, you know, if they didn't have enough food in a particular area or they needed medical supplies, they could try to go and find them. But all that has been shut down. Uh, you know, it has been a they've, they've used the COVID-19 pandemic to reassert control over the North Korean people and their movements. 
what do we actually know about the coronavirus situation in North Korea currently? Back in August, uh, Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, declared victory in the country's fight against uh, COVID-19. That's according to uh, the North's state media, of course. Well, I think that the North Korean government really can't be trusted to provide uh, reasonable or accurate information about what is happening on uh, the COVID-19 crisis inside North Korea. I mean, we had for many uh, for the first year or two of the of the pandemic, they're claiming that there were no cases. And all of a sudden, there's they say there's a few cases. And then all of a sudden, they've declared victory that there are no more cases. Um, you know, I mean, I think this is the North Korean government basically making it up as they go along. Uh, we will never really know how bad uh, COVID-19 was in North Korea, how many people it affected, because this is uh, all part of the propaganda of the regime there, that they are not going to uh, permit uh, uh, any sort of uh, unauthorized information about COVID-19 and the, and the status in North Korea to leak out. Sure. So you mentioned how the beefed-up border security has almost completely stopped uh, unauthorized cross-border uh, activity, economic activity. Uh, you've talked yes. about how it impacted the grey uh, markets. But can you elaborate on how this is really affecting the lives of ordinary North Koreans? What consequences uh, are we seeing? Well, for North Koreans, there's a couple different areas. I mean, one, if for people who are trying to leave the country, who are trying to flee the country, you know, now they have to na- navigate these uh, these border fences, increased uh, watchtowers. Uh, you've got these buffer zones that have been set up between the primary and the secondary fencing, where uh, guards have been given orders unconditionally shoot on sight anybody who's entering or leaving without permission. Um, so it is quite clear that they have basically forced an end to people being able to flee the country. Uh, In terms of unauthorized uh, smuggling activities, uh, which was the primary source of the goods in many of these these gray markets, that has also been shut down. Uh, They have uh, effectively made it almost impossible to resupply, uh, you know, things like medicines from uh, China. Uh, various different types of foodstuffs, uh, you know, any sort of uh, information or other things that are coming in that is unauthorized. I mean, what you with by shutting this all down, they have basically once again re-isolated the North Korean people, and you know that is not just for for economic purposes, but it's also for political control. It's important to understand that the uh, Kim Jong Un uh, government viewed uh, external influences uh, in terms of information and other goods coming in, as well as people fleeing uh, out of the country and being able to tell stories about what was happening inside North Korea uh, in a very negative way. And they have systematically moved to shut that down and, again, reassert control over the North Korean people in a way that we haven't really seen uh, since the the arduous march in the mid-1990s when the massive famine essentially broke central control over people's daily lives in many parts of North Korea. We're seeing a reassertion of that control. Hmm. Uh, How severe has the situation uh, gotten when it comes to uh, the people trying to defect? Uh, How low have the numbers got now? Do we know? Oh, we're... I mean, it's gone from in the the last days of uh, Kim Jong-un's father. uh, You know, there were as many as 3,000 people fleeing per year and and arriving in South Korea. That's now down to, um, you know, 20 or 30 a year. You know, and I mean, it's it's a tiny fraction. 
uh, almost no one is getting out at this point. Uh, and for the North Korean government, they see that as a major success, that they are uh, controlling their people. They're not letting people flee the flee. I mean, it's also partly because North Korea has been doing deals with China so that if China uh, intercepts North Koreans, uh, instead of treating them as refugees, as China should, uh, they're sending them back into harm's way in North Korea. And, and that sort of thing makes it very difficult. If you can't get out of North Korea in the first place, and then you face major obstacles being able to travel across China to try to get to uh, Southeast Asia, to get to Thailand, where many of the people would then leave to go to South Korea, it, it's almost impossible to make that journey now. It is, of course, a very concerning situation. Is there anything that can be done at the moment by the international community to improve the situation uh, in North Korea? Last Wednesday, the uh, third committee of the UN General Assembly passed a resolution condemning human rights violations by North Korea, which was the 18th bill of its kind since 2005. Uh, But this time, South Korea co-sponsored the resolution for the first time in four years as well. Uh, What more can the international community be doing? Well, I think it's important that this um, that South Korea did come back into the fold and, and support that resolution. I think that uh, the government in Seoul deserves credit for doing so. Uh, what we need to really do is move this whole debate also back to the UN Security Council. Uh, prior to 2016, there was a, a annual debate in the UN Security Council talking about how uh, human rights violations in North Korea are connected to international security threats, and and quite clearly when we see. Uh, the ability of the North Korean government with limited resources uh, to, you know, build nuclear bombs and build these kind of missiles. It's partly because they are able to impose such fear on the people of North Korea that they would never dare object to diversion of uh, scarce resources away from uh, essential goods and items uh, to, you know, the the ongoing uh, warmongering of uh, the North Korean government. Um, because there's no accountability to the North Korean people, because it's such a dictatorship, because people are afraid of being sent to the gulags and the mountains, what we see is a uh, a human rights situation that then enables uh, the continued use of scarce resources for weapons of mass destruction. It is is intimately connected, it should be dealt as an international security threat as well as a major human rights and humanitarian tragedy. Okay, Mr. Robertson, we'll have to leave it there. We'll be speaking to Phil Robertson, the Deputy Asia Director of Human Rights Watch. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 24.98 points, or 1.02% on Monday, ending the day at 2,419.50. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 13.35 points, or 1.82%, closing the day at 718.57. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 14.41 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,354.71. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on to Korea Trending Now, our daily segment looking at some of the other news stories that have been trending online today. 
And for that, we're joined by Walter Lee. Walter, hello. It's good to see you again. Hello, Chang Hao. It's always good to see you. Okay, so what topics do you have for us today? Okay, so we'll learn about the South Korean government's four-week intensive vaccination period that began on Monday. We'll also talk about what experts think about the images that were revealed of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's daughter. And finally, we'll discuss how BTS's Jungkook took the world by storm at the opening ceremony of the 2022 FIFA World Cup on Sunday. Okay, let's get into those stories then. Walter, can you tell us more about the first one? Yes, so South Korea is gearing up to actively tackle a winter resurgence of COVID-19, including providing perks to those who get booster shots. So on Monday, the government kicked off a four-week period promoting the inoculation of booster shots, mainly among senior citizens aged 60 or older, for the winter season. Now, same-day inoculation of the Omicron uh, adapted boosters is available without reservations during the same period. Now, the government's aim is to have 50% of people aged 60 and older and 60% of residents and employees at high-risk facilities vaccinated. Right, so people can yet walk-in bivalent booster shots from clinics starting today. And as you said, the aim is to get at least half of all senior citizens in Korea to get the booster shots. Mm. Uh, What are the current numbers looking like for that age group, actually? Okay, so as of last Friday, only 16% of people in that age bracket were estimated to have received booster shots. Mm. This comes as the elderly population accounted for over a quarter of new infections, despite a steady decline in the number of COVID-19 cases. Also, health authorities have estimated that 26% of those who tested positive for COVID-19 in nursing homes and long-term care hospitals during the past eight weeks were found to have been reinfected. Right, so that outlines the importance of booster shots. Uh, You mentioned that the authorities are also providing incentives to promote inoculation during this four-week period, right? What what kind of uh, incentives are we talking about? Yeah, that's correct. So those who receive booster shots can enjoy discounts on temple stay programs and will be able to enter ancient palaces and royal tombs free of charge. Now, the government will also provide various support funds for high-risk facilities and local governments that have high vaccination coverage. I understand that the government began implementing another rule on Monday to prevent the spread of infections in high-risk facilities. Yes, it did. So starting Monday, nursing homes residents will be banned from going out on day trips or outings unless they receive updated Omicron bivalent uh, boosters. Now, the rules apply to nursing homes residents who have not had a vaccination in over 120 days or who are confirmed to have tested positive for COVID-19. Yes, we have seen the number of cases tick up again in recent weeks. So hopefully Mm. this push for uh, booster shots will help convince them, uh, help convince people to head to their local clinics uh, to get their uh, extra shots now. Right. Right. On to our next story. We'll take a further look into the meaning behind certain photos that we talked about in news briefing today, right? Yes. So as we mentioned earlier, in an unprecedented move, North Korean media revealed images of the daughter of its leader, Kim Jong-un, over the weekend as it actively covered the story of Pyongyang's recent launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM. Now, this came a day after state media disclosed pictures of the little girl wearing a white jumper and black pants and holding her father's hand and looking at the missiles. It marked the first time ever for the North Korea's official media to reveal the images of of the child. Yes, it really is noteworthy, especially given that Kim's father and grandfather, uh, they had kept their children out of the public eye before solidifying mm. their power structure. So what could be Kim's intent 
uh, behind revealing his daughter to the public. Well, experts believe that Kim did so to boast the new- North's nuclear capability and to express his confidence in the successful missile launch. Now, Professor Im Uchul of the Institute of Far Eastern Studies says if the ICBM launch was likely to be a failure, Kim would have not brought his wife and child. The disclosure of the latest photos suggests that the North has significant confidence in the Hwasong-17 ICBM program. Now, some other experts say uh, that the photos were meant to portray Kim as a generous leader, while others speculated that the images suggest Kim's intent to continuously pursue the North's nuclear ambitions in the future generations to come. Yes, there had been some speculation that perhaps it suggests that this daughter is being groomed as the next leader of the regime, but most agree that such succession talks are premature. Mm. But it certainly was a curious sight of the weekend. Okay, let's move on to our final trending story. What else was trending today? Yeah, so an update on the story that we talked about last week. So Chongguk of K-pop sensation boy band BTS took the stage at the opening ceremony of the 2022 FIFA World Cup on Sunday. Now the youngest member of the group put on an exciting show with his new solo single, Dreamers, with a surprise appearance by Qatari singer Fahad Al-Kubashi in front of 60,000 spectators at Al Bayt Stadium in Al-Khor. Now Chongguk has now become the first Asian first Korean and first K-pop act to have a solo song for the World Cup. Yes, uh, previous World Cup official songs have become global hits. For example, Shakira's Waka Waka in the <laughs> 2010 tournament in South Africa. Does it look like a Jungkook single could perhaps follow in its footsteps? Well, it's still early doors, but Dreamers topped iTunes charts in 102 countries around the world in less than 24 hours, so it does look likely. Now, the countries where the song topped the, se- the said charts include the United States, France, the UK and Canada. Now, the official video of the singer's performance that was uploaded on FIFA's YouTube channel also reached 4.4 million views in less than 10 hours. Yes, and it seems like it really was uh, a dream weekend for Jungkook and BTS fans, right? Yes, that's correct. Because that's not only that, uh, BTS won a trophy at the American Music Awards or AMAs for the fifth consecutive year. Now, according to the organiser of the AMA Award ceremony before the Sunday event, the Septet won in the favourite pop duo or group category. It is the fourth year in a row the K-pop boy band won in that category and the fifth straight year it won a title at the renowned Music Awards since it won the favourite social artist title back in 2018. Now, the group did not attend this year's award ceremony with Jungkook performing at the World Cup opening ceremony. Okay, we'll talk more about the World Cup next, but first we wrap up career trending there. Walter, thank you for those stories, and we'll see you again later this week. See you later this week. The 2022 World Cup in Qatar kicked off on Sunday and after an opening ceremony featuring the K-pop star Jungkook from BTS and the actor Morgan Freeman, the host nation fell to a 2-0 defeat against Ecuador, becoming the first host country to ever lose its opening match. Now, over the next few weeks, we'll devote our Monday Sports Roundup segment to football's biggest event, starting today with the situation on the ground in Qatar, Uh, on and off the field, of course, and 
previewing South Korea's first group game against Uruguay on Thursday as well. To that end, we're joined by two guests. First, we have in the studio football writer Steve Price. Steve, hello. It's good to have you here in person today. Yeah, great to actually be in the studio for once. Yes, indeed, and welcome. And connecting with us in Qatar is Paul Williams, a football journalist and the founding editor of The Asian Game, a website to get dedicated to all things football in Asia. Paul, hello, and thank you for coming on the show as well. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Paul, let me start with you, because you are in Qatar, and I believe you watched the opening ceremony in the first game against uh, Ecuador, uh, featuring Qatar as well. What did you make of the opening ceremony in the first game? The opening ceremony itself was quite a spectacular event. Yeah, I was there at the stadium last night, lucky enough to be there for, for that match and for that occasion. And yeah, the, the opening ceremony itself was, was a spectacular event. I think they, they did the event justice with uh, the opening ceremony. Um, unfortunately for Qatar, that's where the, the celebrations ended because um, their performance on the pitch was pretty unremarkable. It has to be said there was a lot of anticipation coming in for, for Qatar as the, the host nation. They had a lot of... Um, burden on their shoulders um, as to how they would perform, given that they hadn't you know, previously participated at a, a FIFA World Cup. So there'd been a lot, of, a lot made of Qatar's so-called lack of, of football heritage, and this was their chance to, I guess, show that they prove that they belong on this stage. But mm. they, they plucked their lines last night and, and put in a performance that was um, uh, left a lot of people disappointed after the game, I think it's fair to say. Sure, I heard that uh, many people left the stadium at half-time as well. Mm. Now, the atmosphere uh, in the stadium was not that great. No, it was a little bit flat, to, to, to be honest. Um, at the start of the game, certainly the atmosphere was fantastic. There was a great portion of Ecuadorian fans that had made the, the trip across to Qatar and they were making a fantastic noise. There was uh, a lot of buzz and excitement at the, the start of the game, but it quickly became apparent that Qatar were going to be no match for Ecuador and that kind of popped the balloon a little bit and sucked the life out of the stadium. And I think most people realised, even though the score was only 2-0 at half-time, that, you know, theoretically they could get back into the game. But, the, you know, for all intents and purposes, the game was over. And, yes, the second half kicked off. There was a lot of empty seats and they're just that just continued throughout the second half that there became more and more empty seats to the point that in the final 10 minutes... There were probably more empty seats than there were people inside the stadium, which was uh, really disappointing. Sure. So a disappointing start on the field. Uh, one of the controversial decisions for this World Cup was to move it uh, to the winter for the first time ever. Even though it is winter, I understand that it still has been rather hot. Uh, how has it been so far? It has been warm on the ground during the day. There, there were certainly no issues with, with temperature Last night, um, it was a 7 p.m. local kickoff, so the, the sun had been down for, for two hours. By that stage, it was very, very mild at kickoff. Would have been perhaps only 20 degrees at kickoff. So, you know, certainly heat wasn't a factor. But certainly during the day, it's starting to drop day by day gradually. I know you go back about a, a week ago, the, the temperature was about 35 degrees during the day. It's now getting down to sort of 28, 29 degrees during mm. the day. So it's still warm. Um, but the temperature is slowly dropping. But there is you know, going to be midday kickoffs, and I think a lot of people that are out and about in Qatar are choosing to sort of go out and about at night time when temperatures are a little bit more mild. 
Sure. So thankfully, it's not too bad at the moment. And Paul, how would you describe the general mood in Qatar at the moment? There's been a lot of controversies, of course, starting from the accommodation,、uh, supposed paid supporters, the sudden alcohol U-turn in stadiums, as well as broader concerns, of course, with human rights and homophobia and sports washing.、Uh, what has it felt like for you on the ground? Do you see those controversies、uh, where you are? I don't see the controversies where I'm. I've only been in the country for about 48 hours, so I've been out and about a little bit, but haven't experienced it fully yet. But from what I've seen, there's just a joyous atmosphere within the country. There are a lot of fans now starting to, to file into the country. A lot of、uh, fans from you know South America, some from Europe as well. And、um, I, I, as as much as those controversies exist. Um, I think a lot of people are just coming here to to enjoy the football, to enjoy the occasion.、Mm. You know, you walk around the souk at night time, the corniche at night time, anywhere around the city, and there is a general、uh, general buzz and a general vibe that、um, I think a lot of people are excited just to be at a World Cup and and to experience a World Cup and to to have the entire world come to to one city and celebrate it together. Interesting, Steve. Let me turn to you now. I know you're not in Qatar, obviously, so you can't give、mm-hmm. us a first-hand account. But、uh, watching the game on TV yesterday, like、uh, many people around the world, and seeing everything that's been going on,、uh, what have you made of the event so far? Yeah, it seems a bit of、um, a bit of a slow start, doesn't it? And、uh, I think there's a few things which are making it maybe people there's not as much World Cup fever as there might have been.、Mm. Um, the gap between the end of the well. The, End of the last、uh, football fixtures in the Premier League and the start of this World Cup so short that there's not been time for it to really build up, and I think there's only one Saturday 7 p.m. kickoff in career time, for example. So I think those kind of things are going to make it a bit more difficult for the rest of the world outside of Qatar to really feel that World Cup atmosphere.、Mm. And of course, yeah, you've got all the the controversies as well.、Um, a few kind of own goals by Qatar in in that case,、uh, like. With the beer, just announced that a year beforehand or so,、mm. and it wouldn't be so much of an issue by now. I mean, there's plenty of Champions League games where alcohol is not served, for instance. Sure.、Um, things like that, and like Infantani's speech, <laughs> that kind of thing.、Um, mm. So there's a, a few things like that also, which have kind of put it off to a bad start.、Uh, but we'll see what see what happens over the next week or so. Yes, that was a rather bizarre speech by the FIFA、mm. uh, president Gianni Infantino. Uh, which we will get into today.、Uh, before we move on to the actual football and specifically about South Korea's prospects,、uh, how much do you think, Steve, the football will be overshadowed, perhaps, by some of these off-field issues that we're talking about? Or do you think once the major teams get going,、uh, the football will take over? Yeah, I think people are still going to watch it,、um, especially watch their team. But I think there's going to be less interest in the other teams、uh, and the other matches, for example. Uh, a bit less of that World Cup fever.、Uh, it's going to feel almost a bit like、um, you know, regular games from people who are not in the country.、Mm. Paul, what do you think? It's hard to gauge, really, because I think a lot of this is often viewed through a, a European lens,、um, and I think there is、um, a lot of disenchantment with the, this World Cup, particularly from a European perspective. That The view that I get, particularly from from this part of the world and from you know places like Africa and South America, is that those controversies,、um, you know, other parts of Asia as well, those controversies just aren't a factor at all.、Um, they are aware of them, but it's it's not an off-putting factor. They, the, the World Cup means everything to to those 
to those people and, and to those nations. Um, mm. And as much as those controversies exist, it doesn't it doesn't mean as much to them as it does to those perhaps in in Europe that have have made such a um, a, a big issue out of these and, and, and rightly so in a lot of cases. But um, I think for the rest of the world, um, uh, they're just celebrating a World Cup as they would often celebrate a World Cup. Sure. Interesting. OK, let's now talk about South Korea. The anticipation is building towards the first match against Uruguay on Thursday. Kickoff is 10 p.m. Korea time. Uh, before, though, uh, before all that, though, the first question on everyone's mind is, of course, will the captain and the talismanic star player Son Heung-min play? He, of course, suffered fractures around his left eye earlier this month and only received surgery on it just over two weeks ago now. Under normal circumstances, he would still be in recovery, but this is, of course, not normal circumstances. Steve, what do we know about Son Heung-min's injury at the moment? Will he be able to play the first game against Uruguay on Thursday? Right, that's the question on everybody's lips, isn't it? Um, we saw, if you went back to um, the last European Championships, Kevin De Bruyne had a very similar injury uh, he picked up in the Champions League and he played in Belgium's first game, which was roughly the same number of days as between Son Heung-min's original injury and Korea's first game against Uruguay. So it looks good for him and we've seen him wearing his mask uh, on the training ground, so he's training as normal. And it's that kind of injury where it's not like a muscle injury or something like that, um, which uh, might affect how long it takes him to recover and affect his training. If he's physically able to do the training on the pitch, then there's no reason why he's not going to be in the starting lineup. And it's probably his last World Cup, or maybe he'll play in the next one, but it's definitely his last at his peak of his career. Mm. So he's going to want to play and he's going to go through the pain if he has to, to get on that pitch. Sure, he said he wants to play, but uh, it might not be up to him. Paul, how much of a loss will it be for Korea to play without Son? I think if they were without Son for a minute, it's an incredible loss. Um, he is, you know, without doubt, the, the star player of the team, the, the best player that uh, the Korea's had for, for the past decade. So if they were to lose Son, that's a, an enormous body blow for, uh, for Paolo Bento's side. I still think he'll play. I, I think... He'll um, he'll wear the, the face mask without a doubt, but I I can't find a scenario in my mind in which Son Hung Min doesn't play in these games. I don't, he's clearly not going to be a hundred percent fit, um, but I think if you've still got Son Hung Min that's perhaps seventy percent fit, I still think you play Son Hung Min because he is that <laughs> much of a difference maker mm. to your side. Mm. Um, we'll find out when you know, Korea have their, um, their the next few training sessions and Paolo Bento's up for a, a press conference uh, tomorrow or the day after, I think it is, and the, the, the match day minus one press conference. No doubt that will be the first question on everyone's lips to, to Paolo Bento at that, uh, that occasion. Is Son Hun Min fit? Um, I still expect him to, to see his name on the, the team sheet when we get to that stadium. Indeed, we'll... Uh, wait further news on his condition and see if he does start on Thursday. Uh, meanwhile, Steve, there are also other concerns. Uh, forward Huang Yi-chan is nursing a hamstring injury, I understand. Uh, Korea's main striker, Huang yi has been desperately out of form as well. Uh, what other question marks are there about the team at the moment? Yeah, I'll say Huang Yi-chan has also been desperately out of form uh, for Wolverhampton Wanderers this season. Uh, so for Korea's three main strikers that they've played um, over the last few years, uh, Son Heung-min, 
Huang Yichan and Huang Yijou, all of them have actually been off form for their clubs this season. Mm. Of course, Sonnen, who had a great season last year, has only scored three goals in the Premier League so far this season. Um, that's three more than Huang Yijou and Huang Yichan combined. They've, they've not hit the net at all. So it's a bit worrying um, for Korea's strikers that they're so off form for their clubs. Uh, but hopefully that form's not going to... Um, materialise on the pitch for the national team of course they've played together so many times that they know each other's game and kind of hoping that all goes together uh, there's a few other options so um, if Huang Yichan uh, is injured then there's quite a lot of options in his position Korea have so many players who can play either in that left attacking wing or right attacking wing and they can all play both of those positions more or less so Korea are pretty covered there uh, the big question about Huang Yijou is whether um, that form is going to affect him or not because he's been so good for the national team. A lot of people have been saying uh, that Cho Gu-song could be playing there instead. Mm. Also, Son Heung-min can also play that position sometimes, although against Uruguay's massive centre-backs, I'm not sure if he really <laughs> wants to do that uh, with with his injury. Uh, sure. He might be a bit better playing on the wing in that, in that case. Uh, but that'll be an interesting one. I think that's the, one of the big decisions for Paolo Bento in the first match is who is he going to play in that number nine role is it going to be Huang Yijou or is it going to be Cho Gyu-song yes that's definitely one to look out for uh, Paul let's talk about Korea's opponents as well Uruguay uh, their best known stars like Edison Cavani and Luis Suarez are in the team but uh, they are well into their twilight years now meanwhile they do have some new stars like uh, Federico Valverde playing at Real Madrid uh, how strong is Uruguay what players uh, should South Korea look out for as well Mm. They, I mean, Uruguay is always strong. For such a small nation, they've managed to always compete on the international level. They always have you know, top-quality international players. For, for such a small country, it is remarkable the success that they've been able to produce. You mentioned some of the names, even a, a player like Darwin Nunez as well, um, who's um, who signed for Liverpool this season as well and is, um, is tipped to be the, the next big thing. So they've, they've certainly got the talent They've got players that Korea are going to have to look out for, going to have to be wary of, um, particularly in those attacking positions, as we've discussed. So, and then a, a player like Kim Min Jae and, um, and Kim Young Won as well in the, the centre of defence becomes super important. That partnership in trying to keep those players out and prevent them from um, from having opportunities. Um, we know how great Kim Min Jae is is performing with with Napoli. This season, so he comes in. I know, you know, Steve was talking about the players that are sort of out of form at the moment. Um, it's probably good that uh, Korea's best defender is in the, the form of his life because mm. he's going to be coming out, coming up against some players, some world class players, and they're going to need to have Kim Min Jae at the top of his game. Indeed, Steve, how do you think Korea will fare against Uruguay? A draw would be a good result. That would be, I think, a perfect result uh, to kind of get things going and give Korea a good chance to go in. But the last time they played Uruguay, they actually won. Uh, that was, of course, a friendly game. But if you watched any of the friendly games against South American nations under Paolo Bento, they've always been kind of quite feisty affairs. Mm. And apart from the games against Brazil, South Korea have a very good record under Beto against those South American sides. They've actually won three, including that game against Uruguay, and drawn two. So uh, they've got... Um, kind of a good recent history in terms of fixtures uh, so that's kind of giving them a bit of an edge but Uruguay are so solid at the back they've I think they've only let in one goal in the last seven games uh, so they're really solid at the back and they've got those strikers like Nunez and like Suarez who can hurt you and they can always pick up a goal from anywhere so it's a very very tough game it's yeah 
if people think Portugal's going to be the tough game, they might be wrong. It might be Uruguay who are the strongest team in this group. Sure. So Uruguay, a tough opponent, but you're giving us a little bit of hope with the stats you gave earlier. Uh, what about some of the other teams in uh, Group H? You mentioned Portugal. They're up against Ghana as well. Steve, how would you uh, rate them and Korea's chances against them? Yeah, Ghana's an interesting one. Actually, their new head coach, Otto Ada, who's only been in the job for 10 games, which is extremely short, mm. uh, even for international level. And in that time, he's actually brought in a load of new top players who have Ghanaian heritage, uh, players like Adleso, uh, Athletic Bill Bowers, Inyaki Williams, like uh, Tarek Lamptey from Brighton Hove Albion. And that's really added a lot of quality to the squad, uh, maybe a bit at the cost of squad cohesion. So they're... It's hard to say how they're going to do in this World Cup. Is that quality going to come through or is it going to cost them a bit? Uh, Portugal look on fire. They beat Nigeria 4-0 in their final warm-up game. And on paper, you look at their team and you think this team could win the World Cup. Uh, Everybody knows about Cristiano Ronaldo and he's been in the news uh, falling out with Manchester United. He's going to be really motivated uh, to prove all of his doubters wrong. But even without him, they've got the likes of Ruben Diaz, like Yetjel Consalo, uh, Bruno Fernandes and so on. So their team is so tough on paper. Hopefully, though, Paolo Bente's knowledge of the Portuguese team means he'll know all of their little <laughs> tricks and stuff and be able to really coach his South Korean players individually on how to deal with the players that they're up against. Sure. And um, Paul, finally, uh, how do you think Korea will do in this group? And what do you think will be the key for Korea to try and make it out? The key, I think, is trying to get something out of this, this first game against Uruguay. Um, I think we all expect Portugal to be the, the toughest team in this group. So that means you're probably needing to then pick up, um, you know, at least one win in games against Uruguay and Ghana and then, you know, a draw in another might be enough. But if you can get two wins, then that would be perfect. So I think it's the games against Uruguay and Ghana um, where Korea need to target those games to be to be getting a result if they want to um, get out of this group it's a difficult group for them. It's a tough group. I mean, all the Asian teams have very difficult groups. Um, so it's it's hard to see a progression forward for um, for Korea to, to get out of this group. If they get a result against Uruguay, then the opportunities open, um, they open up for them. But, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, teams like Uruguay and, um, and Ghana and, and the, the quality players they have. But, I, you know, South Korea's certainly got the quality to be able to get out of the group. It's, it's whether... You know that, that Paolo Bento can get the best out of the the players, whether they can find that fitness at the so it's find that form at the right time to be able to deliver. Because if they can, then they've certainly got the uh, the talent to get out of this group. Um, but they're going to need to get something from the Uruguay game first up. Sure. So that game against Uruguay is on Thursday once again at 10 p.m. Korea time. In the meantime, we'll be praying for Son Ming's quick recovery as well. Steve, Paul, I believe we'll both uh, have you back next week as well. Till then, take care and thank you for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. Hello, this is Tiger JK of Drunken Tiger. You're now listening to Korea 24. It's time now for our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. 
And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, is here with us in the studio again. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay, so what's the first story that we have today? Well, the World Cup has started, and as we mentioned earlier, Jungkook, one of the members of BTS, performed his official World Cup song at the opening ceremony in Qatar. But back in Korea, the veteran modern rock band Transfiction has also made its own anthem for the tournament. That's what Ji Yeon's article in the entertainment section of the Korea Herald is about. Yeah, so this anthem is uh, to support the Korean national team yes. uh, rather than the main event itself. So it's a sort of cheering anthem for the Taeguk Warriors. Yes. Tell us more about this anthem then. It's called Become One and it's part of a collaborative EP the band made with the hip-hop trio Homies and the rapper An Educated Kid. The drummer of the band, Chungi, said that they wanted to release a new cheering song as this year's soccer championship means more to the national soccer squad and local soccer fans as the country reached the 10th straight World Cup finals. The article also mentions that the band is planning to host live concerts with fans to support the national team. Yes, I understand this isn't the first song uh, they have made for the World Cup, right? It isn't. The band has made a series of songs that featured popular celebrities like former figure skater Kim Yuna, Girls Day's Minna and Oh My Girl. Become One was made after the band listened to a recent K-pop song so that it could include the tone and music style that is popular now. Since the band's debut in 2002, so like 20 years ago, it has constantly been trying to take on new challenges and hopes to serve as a bridge between rock musicians and different generations. Hopefully through this project, they can attract younger music fans to rock. Sure, and hopefully uh, it will uh, bring some excitement as uh, fans watch the national team games as well and provide a bit more uh, energy uh, so that uh, the f- players in Qatar can feel their energy as well. The images in the article show a little glimpse of what the music video will look like as well, and it looks like it's very exciting, so I'm sure it'll be very good. Sure, OK. Let's move on to our second story. What do you have for us? Next is an interesting link that I didn't know about between South Korea and Colombia. According to Kwon Miu's article in the national section of the Korea Times, Colombia is Korea's largest flower supplier. Recently, the Association of Colombian Flower Exporters held the Flowers of Colombia Week in Korea. That is an interesting connection. Korea, uh, Colombia is Korea's largest flower supplier. Yes. Okay, so uh, tell us some more about this event, the Flowers of Colombia. Well, it was created to connect 12 Colombian flower exporters and over 50 buyers in Korea. The article mentions that the Latin American country is the world's second largest flower exporting country with more than 1,400 varieties of flowers produced all year round. In the first eight months of this year, Colombia has actually exported over 1,400 tonnes of flowers to Korea. That is a lot of flowers, okay. So I'm guessing uh, they're hoping to expand business partnerships through this event as well. Exactly. The flower export business apparently has created 200,000 jobs in Colombia, which helps provide a better life and education for people who live there. And for Korea, the good thing is that the Latin American country's flower farms are 100% sustainable businesses. That means there is no child exploitation or environmental disruption. One flower exporter said that visiting Korea was interesting for them because they could tell how much Koreans appreciate flowers. <laughs> and a Korean florist who attended the event said that Colombian flowers are large and have strong stems in general, making them suitable for large-scale flower arrangements. OK, we'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we bring our show to a close today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon Jangwa, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye.
KBS World Radio.